Hello there and welcome to Explain International Sierra. This is Theos with me, Samuel Nason, and this week we'll be looking at the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, as we seek to see, uh, answer the question, did Jesus think of himself as God or did Jesus claim to be as, uh, God himself? So this is a common objection if those of you who are uh, either engaging with cults or different religions, one of the common claims that you'll come up against is the claim that did Jesus claim he is God? Um, today, we're not going to be tackling that question. That question in itself could be an entire session on its own. Did Jesus claim to be God? Um, the assumptions and the presuppositions behind that question. Uh, for this particular episode of Theos, uh, we'll be looking at uh, the claims that Jesus made in his parables. So one of the things that I'm convinced about is that when you look, if you're serious in wanting to examine the life uh, and the statements and Jesus' self-understanding, you can find a lot of things throughout Jesus' works in the Gospels, particularly the Synoptic Gospels uh, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason I say that uh, is because many people concede that in the Gospel of John, Jesus is already portrayed as divine. Uh, there's hardly any dispute there, uh, some dispute, but not among mainstream scholars uh, on this topic. But what people will contend is that if you look at these synoptic gospels, which, as I said, is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will find that, uh, well, Jesus is not as divine, not as God as he is in the, gospel, in the gospel of John. Now, this is not something we believe in as Christians, but this is something that many skeptics, uh, especially the likes of Dr. Bart Ehrman, use uh, to, 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 this is the view that he used to push forward. I understand that a uh, few years ago that he's kind of taken uh, a different position. Dr. Ehrman has taken a different position on his view of the synoptic gospels and how they portray Jesus as divine. But in today's session, we want to be looking at a parable because Jesus communicated his deity clearly uh, in his life and teachings. And I'm convinced that if we pay careful attention to the context uh, that Jesus spoke, you will arrive at the same conclusion that even Jesus' enemies did in the New Testament, which is to charge him with blasphemy, claiming equality with God. This is not something that you have to be a Christian to believe. This was something, as I said, even his enemies uh, accused him of. So with that, uh, I want to look today, as I said earlier, specifically at the parable of the prodigal son. Some of you, uh, I know when I posted this out yesterday, were you know, thinking to yourselves, wait a minute, how on earth does the parable of the prodigal son um, attest to Jesus's deity? Uh, well, that will be an interesting topic, wouldn't it? Let's address the question, does the parable of the prodigal son teach that Jesus is God? And if you do have questions, please do send them in in the chat, whether you're watching it on Facebook or you're watching it on YouTube. Uh, the advantage of joining us live, of course, is that you get to uh, participate in the Q&A and we'll to try to take some questions at the end of this. So uh, let's go to Luke chapter 15. And I want to look uh, specifically at the first three verses because those are really important uh, as we seek to unpack what did Jesus think of himself. The parable of the prodigal son comes in later in Luke chapter 15. But in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, you get the context as to why Jesus is sharing about uh, the parable of the prodigal son. There's a reason why Jesus is doing that, and here's the context. In Luke 15, verse 1, we're told, Now the tax collectors and sinners were draw, drawing near to him, and him here being Jesus Christ. Verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes, notice these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, you, you, you auto automatically now, you, you kind of have, let's, let's try and put this down so that you kind of get the context. Uh, well, on the middle there, you have Jesus. Uh, here, he, here he is in the middle. He's teaching. He's doing his teaching. And on, on one side, you, you start having sinners and tax collectors, and, and they're coming to Jesus to hear him. That's, that's the context. Now, let me just describe for those of you who may be new to the New Testament, let me describe who the sinners and the tax collectors are. The tax collectors were seen as traitors by the Jewish people because, remember, Judea at this period of time in Jesus, when Jesus is alive in the first century AD uh, is governed by the Romans. 
And the Romans uh, only really have one motivation for wanting to rule Judea, and that is they want to profit uh, from subjugating the nations uh, that they could. So how would the Romans profit from Judea? Texas. The problem is that the Romans wouldn't often do this themselves. They would get people who knew the culture, who knew the people to collect the taxes for them, and hence the local tax collectors come in. And the problem is that the local tax collectors would be hated among the local community because they were seen as traitors, uh, people who gave up uh, their, their, their relationship with their fellow people, their fellow countrymen, and more importantly, with God in order to side with the Romans, uh, to plunder the people of God, as it were. On the other hand, you also have sinners who were a community that uh, the religious leaders would obviously disassociate from. Uh, and this, this, this word sinners could entail a large group of people. So you have two groups of people, and these people are coming to Jesus. And the tax collectors were particularly hated because the tax collectors were people that uh, when you imagine trying, if you resist the tax collector, you, you didn't want to pay your taxes. Um, you, you would find a Roman soldier at your door the next day with a sword drawn, and that's not a site you want to be in, right? That's not a situation you want to be in. So naturally, you can understand why people hate the tax collectors um, and the sinners, of course, being despised. But the other interesting thing to note is that what some people point out is that perhaps Rome didn't pay its tax collectors and the tax collectors compensated themselves by charging um, a, a big commission, let's say, uh, from the people that uh, they were supposed to collect the taxes from. So whatever that is, just to give you the context, the tax collectors were hated uh, by the, the local community of Jews. But according to verse two, we see there's a second group next to Jesus and that's the Pharisees and the scribes. And let me describe the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of people that were committed to the Mosaic law. These were not aristocrats in particular, although uh, some of the Pharisees belonged to the Jewish council of the Sanhedrin. Uh, you, Pharisees generally were people who, common people who had set themselves apart to belong to this religious group, uh, to follow the laws of Moses. And then you have the scribes who uh, were the teachers of the law or uh, the, the, basically the Xerox copying machine of the law back in the day of the Old Testament. Uh, you didn't have uh, printers and you didn't have uh, printed versions of the Old Testament. These guys were the hand copies, professionally trained scribes that all they did was copy the scriptures and hence they were teachers of the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And while they were not exactly coming to Jesus, unlike the text collectors and the sinners, they were angry at Jesus. So let me put those arrows there to indicate not that they came to Jesus, but that they were angry, grumbling at Jesus. So you have two different moods here, right? The situation is set. You have the angry, you have the tax collectors and sinners approaching Jesus openly. And then you have the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the scribes, angry at Jesus. Why on earth would Jesus uh, entertain these people, these traitors and these despicable sinners? So that's the context. And now we get to one of the most important verses uh, of Luke chapter 15. This verse to me is a key to understanding uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, well, actually before that, yeah, just to reemphasize my point about the mood on both sides here, one side drawing near to Jesus, one side grumbling at Jesus, but verse three is an important one. So in Luke 15 verse three, uh, Luke 15, three, it says, he told them this parable, ten parabolen tauten. And the reason we go to the Greek is to emphasize this is in the singular. This is in the singular. When you look through the passage, Luke 15, you find three different stories. But how many parables are there according to Luke 15 verse 3? One. Just one parable because it's the singular then why do you have three separate stories? You have three separate stories because they're three separate stories that are meant to be part of this one big parable. A parable usually has one main point, and these three stories come together to make one point. Now, let's go back to, we said, why on earth is Jesus telling this parable? He's telling this parable 
in the context of sinners and tax collectors coming to him, which provokes the anger of the Jewish religious leaders. And this is why the parable goes. And not a parable, let, let me just briefly, because our, our focus is not to do an exposition of Luke 15. Uh, in fact, I'm preaching on Luke 15 this Sunday. Uh, but uh, just let me run through briefly what's going on here. Uh, in the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus is seen as the shepherd who goes after the lost sheep. So the parable of the lost sheep is about a shepherd who has 100 sheep, and then he leaves. He when he when he goes at the end of the day, you know, he's he's he's, he's come back. He finds there are only ninety nine sheep. What he does is that he leaves the ninety nine and goes out for the lost sheep. That's what the good shepherd does. And when he finds it, unlike the ninety nine sheep that walk in, the good shepherd carries this. According to Jesus, the shepherd carries the sheep on his shoulder, almost in a dignified position which is something unusual, right? Because uh, the other 99 sheep that weren't lost uh, just walked in on their, on their legs. This lost sheep gets a special privilege of coming in, going back home on the shoulders of the master itself. And you get that why Jesus is telling this parable. He says to the, he's trying to send a message to the Jewish leaders that I'm the good shepherd, that I'm going to seek out the lost sheep and I'm going to find the ones, the sheep that have strayed and I'm going to bring them back to the fold. Now, this is an important point that we will revisit in just a minute. But then the lost coin, the parable of the lost coin, uh, where you, you see that Jesus is like this woman who loses uh, one out of her 10 coins. And she is not going to leave the house. She's going to sweep the house until she finds it. And when she finds it, she's going to rejoice that she has found the lost coin. Now, there's a lot of meaning and discussion and debate as to what is the purpose of the this this story in this, uh, in, in, in this parable. I'm not going to be getting into that in, 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 in this particular session, although I have elsewhere done that. But in this session, I'm just going to say that Jesus is seen as the woman who lost, who owns 10 coins, who owns the 10 coins, loses one of them, is going to seek diligently until she finds the lost coin, and when she finds it, she rejoices. Rejoicing is a key theme in all three of these stories because at the end of every story there's a party there's a rejoicing there's a celebration so that's the story of jesus uh, as a woman the, the lost coin as uh, she finds the coin there's a celebration now you get to the third one the one that we will be dealing with today it's the parable of the prodigal son and in this parable what we see is that jesus is portrayed as the father of the two sons now there are a couple of problems here, as uh, some people would think, by claiming that Jesus is the father, are we trying to imply that Jesus is the father? Uh, well, no, obviously. We'll get to that in just a minute. But how do we come to the idea that Jesus is the father in that story? Let's, let's revisit our model again. You find that there are these four groups of people in two sides, the sinners and the tax collectors coming to Jesus, drawing near to Jesus, and then you have, on the other side, you have the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling at Jesus. Remember, this is the context when Jesus shares the parable. Now, let's hang on a minute, because in the parable of the prodigal son, instead of Jesus in the middle, you have a father in the middle. So Jesus is the father in the story. And what about the a group that comes to him? Instead of the, in the, the text collectors and the sinners that come to Jesus, you actually have the younger son in the story, the sinful, the prodigal son that is coming to the father. And instead of the angry religious leaders, scribes and the Pharisees, you have an angry older brother in the story that is angry at the father for receiving the younger son. So you can see it's the exact same scenario that the, 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 the context uh, we, we, the context that we saw in Luke 15, 1 and 2 uh, presented us with. And now Jesus is coming where Jesus is the one whom uh, the anger of the religious ones are directed to, just as the father in the story is the one with whom the anger of the uh, older son is directed to, uh, grumbling at the father, which is like literally what the old, older son does in the story, and the younger son coming back to the father, returning to the father, drawing near to the father. I went through the context to show why it's so important to see Jesus as the father figure 
in the story. And what happens is that when the father, who, who the younger son, it's, it's really interesting if you actually try to compare what's happening in the story of the prodigal son with the context of the tax collectors and sinners coming to Jesus. In the prodigal son, the younger son asks the father to give him his share of the inheritance. Now, when does the share of the inheritance come to a son? It's when the father dies. But this younger son is telling the father, uh, in other words, go die. You know, I can't wait for you to die soon enough. Give me my share of the inheritance. Uh, and in a typical Jewish home, there would have been death in the house that day. Uh, the younger son would have been put to death uh, for dishonoring his father. But this father um, is really, uh, in the words of Tim Keller, uh, the prodigal God. You know, he's the prodigal father. That he is going to give his son what he wants. He's a loving father. And the younger son takes the father's money, goes away, squanders it on reckless living, kind of like what the sinners did. But he also uh, is basically taking uh, into his possession money that belongs to his father almost like what the tax collectors did they took the money of the people of Israel something that belongs to God because God owns the people of Israel and they're taking what belongs to God and they're spending it on wild living so in many ways the younger son depicts uh, is depicted in the story as reflect it reflects the lifestyle of both the sinners and the tax collectors and interestingly he is so unclean so despicable that Jesus describes the condition of the younger son as wanting to eat pig's food. That's how bad it got. A famine came in, the son lost all that he had, uh, and now he's stranded there and he, he finds himself, you know, his back is to the wall, nothing else to do, and he comes to his senses. He wants to eat pig's food, which, if you know anything about Jewish people, is utterly disgusting, right? So to, 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 to basically... Uh, you know, to, to talk about pig's food to, to a Jew is like telling, speaking to a Malay uh, or a Muslim and talking to them about pigs, you know, and this is unclean. It's haram. Uh, just like to the Jews, it is, it's, it's bad. But in this story, the unclean son, the despicable son, the unclean son comes back to the father. And the father, if he was, uh, you know, uh, would, would, uh, the father would, would just, it's ought to reject the son. In fact, the father ought to stone the son for bringing shame to his name, his family's name and the community. Instead, when the father sees the son coming, the father runs to the son and embraces him. And again, demands that the son be brought home with honor. Just like we saw in the parable, uh, well, not rather, the story of the lost sheep, where the lost sheep comes in on the shoulders of the master in a dignified position, the lost son is going to come home. Uh, in the words of the father, put you know a, a golden, put a ring on him, put sandals on his feet, kill the golden calf. He is going to be come home. He's going to be coming home as a celebrated son, which is really unique because it's a son that brought dishonor to the family. But like every story, the celebration theme comes in at the end. And what is unique about the story of the prodigal son is that it has the reaction of the angry brother. At the end, if this story was all about the love of God, the father or the love of Christ, it should have ended with the younger son coming home and the celebration. But this story was directed to the religious leaders that were angry at Jesus. That's why at the end of the story of the prodigal son, you have a little bit of drama at the end with the older son, because that's the group that Jesus wants to talk to. That's the group that's grumbling at Jesus. And so what Jesus, what happens at the end of that story is that the father goes out to, of the house in the midst of the celebration to go and entertain his angry son. Now, the idea of going out brings back the idea of the lost sheep because in the parable of the law, well, in the story of the lost sheep, the shepherd leaves the sheep at home, the, the sheep that were not lost, and goes out to the lost. But there's a plot twist here. At the end of the story, it's the lost son that's in the house. It's the son that thinks that they are found, the self-righteous son that's on the outside. And Jesus, just like the shepherd in that story, being the father in this story, goes out to the actual lost son, the self-righteous son, to call them home, to call the religious leaders home to himself. Now, what are the Christological 
implications of all this? What's the point of, uh, yeah, even, even uh, you know, even, what, what's the implications of all this? Uh, the implications of all this, uh, let me draw at least five implications of this. Number one, Jesus saw himself as the shepherd of Israel. That's the first point. Jesus saw himself as the shepherd of God's people. Why is that important? Because in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 15 to 16, we see the Lord speaking, God saying, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. Now you see where the idea of seeking the lost sheep comes from. And I will bring back the strayed, implying the strayed sheep. And I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. Will I destroy? I will feed them in justice. So you have the situation here where Jesus uh, is identifying himself as the shepherd of Israel. Both the righteous Jew, the religious leaders, and also the unrighteous Jew, Jesus is the shepherd to them all. But as we saw in the Old Testament, God is the shepherd of Israel, and God is the one that seeks the lost sheep. In other words, Jesus' self-understanding here is that he saw himself to be God, in just like what God did in the Old Testament. He's comparing himself to God. In fact, if anything, that same chapter, verse 30 to 31, emphasizes this point. It says, and they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Notice how many times the word God is being used here. So Jesus is identifying himself with God in the Old Testament, who says that he, the Lord, is uh, you know, the, the shepherd of Israel, and that Israel is his human sheep, and that he is their God. Can we see that Jesus is actually trying to draw that connection here to say that he is divine, this, 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 this figure that, like God, is not on par, not on the same level with the Jewish leaders, not a little bit better than them in that he's like a prophet figure. No, he's the God of them. They are his shepherd. Now, a popular objection to what I just said is that, well, even the kings of Israel uh, were seen as the shepherd of Israel. There's nothing uh, divine about Jesus claiming to be a shepherd because that's what the kings were. That's true. But if we, look, if we look at anything in Israel's history prior to the exile, uh, when the people of Israel went into Babylon, if we look at anything in Israel's history, we find that Israel's leaders, the shepherds, are always bad examples. They're not good shepherds. They're all bad shepherds. They fail to properly take care of God's sheep. So in the end, Ezekiel 34, after getting to the period of the exile, the Babylonian exile, says that ultimately God himself, will be their shepherd. And that's what we see fulfilled in the New Testament when Jesus comes in and sees himself as playing that role, the God who shepherds his people because Israel's kings have failed to be a good shepherd to them. And unlike Israel's kings, he will go after the lost. He will do what is just and right. So this is a powerful, powerful indicator that Jesus is comparing himself to be the faithful shepherd of Israel, something that hardly any king of the Old Testament was, with the exception of maybe David, which is really interesting because David is mentioned in Ezekiel as the one who will shepherd God's people, but David is already dead. Why does it speak of it in the imperfect tense, the future tense, if you read the English translations, about David shepherding God's people when David is dead? That's because Jesus, the son of David, is like David, a king and a shepherd for his people, except he's not just a human shepherd, he's a divine one. Number two, Jesus saw himself as the father of Israel. Why is this an important one? Because in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8, we see that Isaiah says, But now, O Lord, you are our father, and we are the clay, and you are our porter, and we, we, are, we are all the work of your hand. So Isaiah 63, verse 16, a chapter before this, also says, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, our father, our redeemer from old is your name. The, in the Old Testament, the Lord, Yahweh, is the father for both the righteous Jew and the unrighteous Jew. Uh, the, well, the people of Israel. Yahweh is their father. And by 
seeing himself as the father figure in this story to both Jew and the righteous Jew and the unrighteous Jew, Jesus is seeing himself in a role that Yahweh plays in the Old Testament, this father to his people. If anything, this, this idea of the father saving his people comes in really strong in the book of Exodus, where Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn. And because you're doing this to my firstborn, I'm going to strike your firstborn down. You, you, you see the Lord portraying himself as the father in all of the Old Testament. And when it comes to the New Testament, Jesus is seeing himself in that role, that he is the redeemer of Israel. And ultimately, of course, he will give his blood in the redemption for his people as Isaiah chapter 53 prophesies. But there's an important point here that we need to make. By claiming that Jesus is the Father, this will lead some to conclude that Jesus is God the Father. That is a huge theological mistake, and maybe we could do an entire session on that, on the heresy uh, of the oneness movement that sees Jesus as the Father. No, Jesus is not the Father, but sometimes the word Father can be applied to Jesus if we, we, we don't use it in, in the sense of the definite article, not the Father, but a Father, or... or you know, so uh, let's go to, for example, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, um, where it's a prophecy about Jesus. It says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the term Everlasting Father is a title given to Jesus, according to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, but Jesus is not to be confused with God the Father. There is a lack of the definite article in that passage as well. The duh is missing. So there is a difference between God the Father and there's a difference between Jesus. And in fact, that is going to be reflected in the story uh, when the younger son comes home. We're going to see in just a minute. He's going to say, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So there is distinguishing God the Father from Jesus himself. Now, if there are any questions on that, we'll, we'll love to be able to tackle that in the, uh, the, the Q&A, uh, well, in the end of this session. So, number three, Jesus saw himself as the offended one, the one offended by the sins of the tax collectors and the sinners. So, uh, Jesus saw himself as the, ex uh, the one offended. Where do we get this from? We get this in Luke 15, verse 21, where the younger son declares, uh, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let's stop for a moment. We just established that Jesus is the father in this story and that the younger son are the sinners who are repenting and coming to Jesus. Now, remember their sinners include tax collectors and sinners. But if they are claiming that they have sinned against heaven, which is God, uh, it's, another, it's, a, it's another way of saying God, uh, you know, for example, in the Matthew's gospel, it's the kingdom of heaven, although in Luke, it's the kingdom of God. It's the same thing. But it's also, they also sinned against Jesus, the father in this story. Now, let's stop for a moment. And this is an important point. Ask ourselves, how have the tax collectors sinned against Jesus? How have the sinners who have led sinful lifestyles offended Jesus? I mean, they're coming to Jesus, and we, we know from the Gospels that Jesus forgives the, sin, the sinners, which drives the religious leaders insane. But how is Jesus seeing all of this uh, as if, you know, <laughs> how is he he's seeing himself as the figure who is offended, the one who is offended by the sins of the sinful Jews? The reason is because in the Old Testament, Psalm 51 verse 4 is one of many examples David sins against Bathsheba. He sins against the husband of Bathsheba. He sins against the family of Bathsheba, which includes his friend Ahithophel, the grandfather of Bathsheba. He sins against a lot of people in the story. He sinned against his general, making him do something bad. Uh, he sinned against his army. All sorts of people that David sins against. Yet look at his prayer of repentance with, with regards for, for his sins. Uh, with Bathsheba, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So David, in spite of all the people that he offends, he points to God and says, only against God has he sinned. Now, if sins is something that we sin against God, if God is the offended party by our sins, then it follows 
that Jesus should not be seeing the sins committed by the, 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 the tax collectors and the sinners as sins committed against himself. Unless, of course, he saw himself to be God. So much so that the sins committed against God were sins committed against Jesus. That is a powerful truth that Jesus saw himself as the offended party of the sins committed by the Jewish leaders. And again, this is this again is nothing surprising. It's nothing out of the ordinary because Jesus constantly forgives the sins of people in the gospel. So, you know, you find in the gospel of Mark, you have a man brought down from the roof to Jesus uh, and he's there because he's, you know, paralyzed. He can't walk. And they, they broke the roof to bring him down for one reason. They wanted this guy to walk. And the first thing Jesus says to them, I believe it's in Mark chapter 3, is your sins are forgiven. And I mean, with all due respect, Jesus, that guy didn't come there to have his sins forgiven. He came there to walk. Why does Jesus forgive his sins? Well, Jesus explains. Because the moment he says your sins are forgiven, it irks the religious leaders around him. And Jesus is looking at them and going, uh, you know, he knows they're offended at what he just said. He said, which is easier to tell this man your sins are forgiven or to tell him rise up, pick up your mat and walk? Now, obviously, that's a trick question because both of those are equally difficult. I mean, it's, it's difficult to do. Well, not, yeah, it's both of them are difficult, right? To actually forgive someone's sin is difficult unless, of course, you were pretending. Uh, and to actually tell someone to rise up and pick up their mat and walk to literally heal them is also difficult. But the difference is one is visible and the other can't be seen. You can actually see if the man is healed, that he will literally pick up his mat and walk. But you can't see if someone's sin has been forgiven. That's something that happens on the inside. And Jesus is saying, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, rise up, pick up the mat, your mat, and uh, rise up and walk. What is Jesus saying? The evidence that Jesus has the ability to forgive sins is demonstrated in his ability to heal the man. So that what is visible authenticates what cannot be seen. What is visible is the man picking up his mat and walking. That authenticates what we can't see is that that man's sin is actually being forgiven. And so that the authority of Jesus to heal was not so much an act of charity as it were, although Jesus came uh, to, to heal the sick and to bind up the brokenhearted, as Isaiah prophesies, but it's to demonstrate that he is the one who has the power to forgive sins. And that is something that only God can do. So now, again, one objection to this is that some people will say that, well, you know, if a people, people repent, a prophetic figure has the right to declare them forgiven. It's true, but Jesus didn't merely see himself as the one who was forgiving, uh, uh, declaring their sins forgiven as much as he was, you know, the one claiming to forgive their sins, which is a big difference, right? Which is what the religious leaders understood. The religious leaders around Jesus did not interpret Jesus' actions to be merely saying, God has forgiven your sins, as much as he was saying, he forgave their sins. And when you come to the parable of the prodigal son, you can understand why, because he sees himself, Jesus sees himself as the offended party in the sense of the religious uh, the sinners and the tax collectors, and also the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. With that, point number four, Jesus saw himself as the one those returning to God must return to. So let me summarize this in two points. Leaving Jesus, in, according to this, is leaving God. When the prodigal son left the father's house, that's an, act, that, that's an indicator that he's going, following a sinful lifestyle. It's an, act, it's an example of him leaving God, backsliding. And also in the story, we find that returning to Jesus equals returning to God. If you want to return to God, Jesus' point is, you must return to him. So why is this important? Because in Zechariah 1 verse 3, we see, for example, even in the Old Testament, there's this idea, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You kind of see this being demonstrated in the parable of the, uh, well, in the, the, the story of the, the prodigal son, where as the younger son is returning, the father is returning to him. And they meet halfway. The father doesn't stand at home, you know, waiting for his son in, in this full dignified manner. No, the father runs to the son. That's as undignified as you can get because it indicates the heart of the father to want to return to the son. So if that's the case, Jesus is actually picturing himself here 
as the one, if you want to go to God, you go to Jesus. And you find that Jesus says this in the other gospels, it's consistent. Jesus says that if you seeing him is seeing the father. And there are many ways in which in John's gospel, he demonstrates this as well. If you, if he says to Thomas, you've seen me, you've seen God the father. In John chapter 10, he says that it's his hands holding the sinners, the sheep, uh, his, the, the sheep are held safe in his hands. John chapter 10 was 20 onwards, if you read down. And it also says the, the sheep are safe in the father's hands. And it, if, if you're wondering which hands is it, is it Jesus' hands or the father's hands? He goes on to say in John chapter 10, I and the father are one in that they are united in saving the sheep. So again and again, we see that Jesus sees himself as the one to, do, to, to whom those coming to God will have to come through. And it's no wonder he says, uh, you, know, there's, there, you know, no one comes to the father uh, except through me. He, he's not just seeing himself as a prophetic figure whom those who listen to must come to. He's seeing himself as a divine figure who represents the father, who is a perfect representation of the father. And those who are, are wanting to return to God must come to Jesus. That's as clear as you can get. Let me just tackle one last point and we'll wrap this up. Number five, Jesus saw the one, uh, saw himself as the one whom the Jew, Jewish leaders hypocritically pretended to obey. Where do we get this? We see in Luke 15 verse 29, in the back and forth that goes between the father and the elder son. The father is coming out to meet the elder son. The father is pleading with the elder son to come home, urging him to come back in to celebrate uh, his brother. And look at the, the words that the elder son say to the father. And you're going to find this really interesting because it's the word that the Jewish leaders used all the time. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I, and I never disobeyed your command. I never disobeyed your command. Mind you, the hypocrisy here is expressed in the fact that the father is asking the younger son, the older son to go home, to come in, to celebrate. And the younger son is disobeying the father while at the same time having the nerve to tell him, I've never disobeyed your command. What's going on here? That's outright hypocrisy. But it's also reflective of the angry Jewish leaders who were at this point grumbling at him. And it's, it's, it's reflective of what they say. And you find this elsewhere as well in Mark 10, 20, that you know, one of the rich young rulers says to Jesus, teacher, I've kept, I've kept uh, and all these I've kept referring to the commandments of God uh, from my youth. I've kept them all. And we know that's not true. Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the point here is an important one. That in this story, the religious leaders were hypocritically pretending to obey the father. The, the, the elder son was claiming to obey the father while disobeying the father. But in the real life, the Pharisees claimed to be obeying all of God's command. So which means that Jesus again is seeing himself as the God whom the Jewish the religious leaders are hypocritically pretending to follow. In reality, they don't really follow him because if they did, they would come to him and be saved. And so what Luke 15 is, it's a beautiful example of when at the end of, you, you get to verse 32, the story abruptly stops. The father pleads with the younger son to come in, the older son to come in to celebrate. And answer, the question is, does the, does, does the older son come in? What's the outcome of that story? There is no answer. The story abruptly stops. I, when, when I remember preaching on this passage, I would always tell people, let's see the concluding verse. Let's all read Luke 15, 33 together. And of course, they'll be searching then. Look, there's no such verse, right? There's no verse 33. And the reason I do that is because to tell them there is no conclusion to that story. That's a cliffhanger. Because this is meant to be an invitation to the religious leaders to listen to him to submit to the Father, to, to repent and come home to the Father, God, who is right here. Because they think they're following God, but in reality, they are not. And if they truly were wanting to follow the voice of God, they will be following the voice of Jesus. That's the point of the parable of the prodigal son. And it ends there as an invitation here. So did the, did the, the older son come in at the end of it? Uh, well, the, the answer here, the spoiler to this, this story at the end of the Gospels is that the older son, instead of coming into the father, 
decided to kill the father. Uh, took the father, handed the father over to the Romans. Unlike the, uh, the tax collectors who profited off the father uh, by taking his wealth uh, and squandering it, the, the, the older son drags the father to the Romans and literally hands him over to be killed, which is really shows they were much worse than the, the, the tax collectors and the sinners. But let me pull all this into one summary here. As far as Jesus' self-understanding is concerned, according to the parable of the prodigal son, which includes, uh, like I said, it's one parable, lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. Here are the five deductions, uh, or the five, uh, summary, the five points we can deduce from this. Number one, Jesus saw himself as the shepherd of Israel. God is the shepherd of Israel. Therefore, Jesus considers himself to be God. Number two, Jesus saw himself as the father of Israel in the Old Testament. Yahweh is the father of Israel. Therefore, Jesus saw himself as Yahweh. Number three, Jesus saw himself as the one offended by the sins of the tax collectors and sinners. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is the offended party for the sins of his people. So Jesus saw himself to be Yahweh. Number four, Jesus saw himself as the one those who those who would return to God must ultimately return to. And again, this is self-evident. Leaving Jesus is leaving God, returning to Jesus is returning to God. Jesus saw himself as being God. And number five, Jesus saw himself as the one whom the Jewish leaders hypocritically pretended to obey. And in reality, uh, uh, the Jewish leaders were pretending to obey God hypocritically, and Jesus considered himself to be God. That's why he put, puts himself in that place. So when we take all this into consideration, this is just one parable, mind you, that most people think have nothing to do with Jesus' uh, deity, you already find five important points that would show us that in his self-understanding, Jesus considered himself to be God. And if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, let me close with an invitation to you that if you want to return to God, you can do so by returning to Jesus Christ and uh, read the Gospels for yourself and realize that God, you know, the Father has sent his Son for each and every one of us who, are who recognize our sinful condition and turn to Christ for forgiveness. He offers his forgiveness free of charge through the death of his son. And the resurrection of Jesus simply proves the fact that God has accepted his sacrifice and will offer eternal life to all who believe. Hope this has been a blessing to you. Let me close this and address some of the questions we have in uh, the live chat. Uh, Judah and Israel as the two sons. So let me, this is a question from Dustin. Judah and Israel as the two sons? No, I, I don't see that in this parable. The two sons here are reflective of the sinners and the tax collectors been reflected in one, one son, a son that returns to Jesus, who sins against Jesus and who returns to Jesus at the end of it. And because Jesus is the father in that story. And on the other hand, you have the religious leader seen as the other son, who is angry and grumbling at the fact that Jesus receives sinners. And as we saw in the parable of the prodigal son, uh, the, 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 the elder son is angry at the father for receiving and celebrating the return of the younger son. So those are the two sons, not Israel and Judah. Um, doesn't, uh, well, let me shoot this question as well. Doesn't make him God the father, but the son that creates all things. Amen. That's exactly what it is. It demonstrates Jesus as the son. Uh, Don Fullman uh, asks, in the parable, it is stated that the son who goes away is sinful and a victim of wild living. Isn't it a subjective opinion that what the lost son had done while away was wrong? If the son was successful with his investment uh, investments while away, would he still be considered a lost sheep in the father's eyes? The failure uh, while away is the problem. No, I think uh, what was wrong about this was the fact that, and that's a really good question, Don. What was wrong about what the, the, elder, the younger son did is that he left the father's house. That was what was wrong about it. Now, the fact that he practiced a sinful lifestyle simply demonstrated what happens when you leave the father's house. And what this, what was this, this, is what, what this was meant to reflect was that the father's house is the fold of God. Talk about in the first parable uh, or the first story of the lost sheep where the sheep are kept, that's, that's really where it is. But the lost sheep, the, what the lost sheep did that was wrong was really leaving the shepherd. That was what was wrong about the lost sheep. That was the primary thing that was wrong. Now, obviously, 
uh, we find that the younger son, uh, the elder son in the story says, well, he squandered his wealth with while living. And of course, what uh, the elder son takes that to mean is that he, he's been sleeping with prostitutes, he's been living an adulterous uh, or, or sexually immoral lifestyle. Now, that seems to me to be in addition to all this. That was not where it started. It really started with him leaving the father's house. Um, and the way we know this is that repentance is seen not in the son coming to his senses, but in the son returning home. So where was the part where the son came home? It, it's when the son returned home. That's how you, you demonstrate the father and the son being reconciled together, not with the son saying, okay, I'm not going to sin anymore, but I'm still going to stay away from the father. So I hope that we, we are seeing that uh, it's going away from Jesus and coming to Jesus. That's what's being discussed here. But that's a good question. Um, and you, you also ask, is it a subjective opinion uh, what the son did uh, was wrong? Um, again, I think I've already clarified that leaving the father was what was really the problem here. And reckless living uh, is not a subjective opinion. It was basically a lifestyle contrary uh, to what the Old Testament uh, you know, uh, prescribed. So it was basically going against the word of God. In many ways, sin is easy to define in the Christian worldview because we have the scriptures that tells us what it is. So we can, some people would argue that the scriptures are not clear. I think the scriptures are clear if read in their proper context. Uh, the problem is that uh, we, we find that every time that someone wants to justify something, uh, they begin to question certain things and that's nothing new. Uh, even in the, in the Garden of Eden, Satan came to Eve and the serpent came to Eve and said, did God really say and challenge something that God explicitly stated. So it's nothing new to actually challenge and say that, did God really say something? If you can cast some level of doubt on what God has clearly spoken, uh, you will be able to uh, entice someone to go and practice certain sins while justifying it and saying there's nothing wrong about it. The good thing about the prodigal son is that he came to his senses, recognized that leaving the father was the problem and returned to the father's fold. Uh, but that's a great question. Let's see. Um, do we have anything else? Exactly. Uh, finding truth. Thank you for saying subscribe and slam. Thank you for encouraging people to uh, uh, to share and like this. Uh, there's a question we received from Harrison uh, Morgan. Uh, thanks for your question. He says, is there any parallel here to the new creation supper of Revelation 19? Are there Old Testament feast imageries uh, that are being pulled out from here? I would think so. You know, I really think so. Uh, but I think I, I think that we could see it in that way. I mean, I, I don't discount that. But what I do note um, is that what it's talking about at the present time. So there's going to be a future celebration. That's true. And I think that uh, it's not wrong to see it that way. But what the, the point of the parable is that we ought to rejoice uh, when a sinner repents. That, that's what it is. It's that we've got to serve sinners. We've got to... Uh, curb this the spirit of un, uh, of self-righteousness is i think what jesus is talking about if anything this parable hits out hard against uh, sp uh spiritual pride unrighteousness uh, and it's talking about the fact that the way uh, so, sorry self-righteousness it's it's telling us that instead of being self-righteous and judgmental of sinners who are coming to christ not sinners who are living a sinful lifestyle sinners who are repenting to christ we should rejoice with with, with them and that's exactly what uh the, the lost coin demonstrates this celebration among the angels in heaven, even when a, a sinner repents. So I think that's the point of it. But again, I, I would totally link this to the great celebration at the end and the Old Testament feast Im uh, Im imageries uh, there. So that's a really good point. Uh, finding truth uh, asks, if Jesus saw himself as the father, would a person who believes that God manifested himself in three different ways while still being one person, be able to use this uh, modalism. Yes, they will be able to not use this, but abuse this. Uh, so clearly, as I said, this is, uh, you, even in this story, you find that Jesus is distinguished from heaven, which is to me a representation of God the Father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Jesus is an offended party, but notice he's distinguished from the Father. That's the brilliance of the way Jesus tells the story. He, 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 he takes into account how people may twist what he means. Uh, and then he covers that by saying, yeah, he sinned against heaven and against me. The distinction of the persons are clearly stated there, but that's a good point. Uh, thank you, Don, for your, uh, for, your, uh, for your response there. Really appreciate that. Now, if there is no other, we try to keep this to about 15 minutes and I've crossed the time. 
do apologize for that, but we really hope this has been a help for you. Uh, if you have any questions uh, on, uh, on on how you, any questions on this, um, or you know, on how you 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 can uh, better understand this parable, do feel free to comment in the uh, in the comment section below. We'll try to take any questions we can, even after the program uh, program ends. And uh, if you'd like to, please don't don't forget to subscribe to Explain Apologetics, like Finding Truth and Slam have been encouraging you to do. If you've liked this video, hit the like button. And again, if you would like to have any of the Explain speakers uh, speak at some of your conferences or teach, we'll be happy to do that. This is one of the main reasons that uh, Explain Apologetics has merged with Explain in, uh, with City Light and now explain international uh, and the reason is that we want to offer our, ourselves to be able to teach wherever the need is of course in the midst of the pandemic it, it both makes it simpler and more complicated at the same time uh, we can't uh, travel but we can always do things virtually uh, so do feel free to log on to our website as well www.explaininternational for more details on how you can do that um, and uh, yes one last thing before we go and that's it uh, that's don't forget that every Mondays 9 p.m. Eastern uh, you will have Dr. Stephen Boyce joining us with facts talking about the fathers the apocrypha uh, and uh, the canon of scripture and uh, textual criticism that will be a fantastic one to not miss and also don't forget in two days time on Friday John Beasley joins us with Conund Old, Old Testament conundrums and my understanding is he's going to be dealing with Genesis 3.15, I've heard. That's going to be exciting to talk about whether it's actually messianic or not. Don't forget to get to catch John Beasley's program, also 9 p.m. Eastern, I believe, this Friday. Uh, for those of you in the States and for those of you in Asia, it's going to be Saturday morning, uh, 9 a.m. as well, for those of you in Hong Kong and in Malaysia. Until next time, it's been a joy being with you. Bye for now. Have a blessed week.